I was thrilled to have Joseph Ellis join us for a conversation about his new book called American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. Many of us have been thinking the founding fathers, boy, if they were only here now, we could solve everything. And Joseph Ellis lets us know whether we could or we couldn't and how we might think about what the founding fathers taught us that might be applicable today. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We are joined today by Joseph Ellis, a preeminent American history scholar and author of best-selling books about George Washington, John and Abigail Adams, Thomas Jefferson, uh, John Jay, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, the creation of the Bill of Rights, the calling of the Constitutional Convention. All of his books converge to inform us about the founding of our country and the founding of a continent-wide democracy. Along the way, Professor Ellis has earned a Pulitzer, a National Book Award, and has brilliantly navigated the tricky balance of producing books of scholarly standards with widespread, enthusiastic, appreciative readership. He now brings these considerable skills to his new book, American Dialogue, The Founders and Us, which, for the first time, Mr. Ellis applies our founding history to the present time, addressing critical issues like race, Equality, the law, and global reach. Mr. Ellis, welcome to Just the Right Book. Boy, I sound like an interesting guy from that introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you're right. I'm I'm doing something different in this book, uh, American Dialogue, that historians aren't supposed to do. I mean, we as and I am a card carrying historian with a degree from a place down near you called Yale. and um, Oh, that little school down the street? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had some miserable days there, but uh, it worked out okay. But I, historians are supposed to be detached. Um, they can't be objective. They can't be mathematicians or physicists, but they're supposed to go back to the past with without any present concern to drive their inquiry. And um they're supposed to be like anthropologists. They're not supposed to go to Samoa and ask how come they don't practice Dr. Spock's child-rearing practice. Mm. And um, here I'm going back with the questions that, as an American citizen, alive and well in the 21st century, strike me as the most resonant and the most troubling. And I'm saying, let's go back to the founding and see if there's any wisdom back there that can help us navigate our way through this difficult moment we're having. I, I think we're in a place where it's a backlash moment in American history, I think. And um, and I I began work on this before the words Donald and Trump were abroad mm. in the land in 2014. So it wasn't driven by Trump's election, though I think the conditions that made a Trump presidency possible and that his uh, his presidency illuminates were were present, and and I think those conditions will be present after Trump leaves. Um, so I'm trying to be relevant, and um, 
that's dangerous. And um, some of my fellow historians wouldn't want me to do this. Uh, but I think that's what we as a public need right now. And I'm not sure this is the perfect Christmas gift for everybody. It's not a Christmas carol, but my goal is to help us understand how we got here and how we can move forward. Mm. Um, and I guess if you said, what's the one line, we need to learn how to argue again together yeah. and to, uh, to come together as a people, as a collective, and to argue about where we're going. Your preface includes a quote from Peter Gay, and Mm. the quote is, history is always unfinished in the sense that the future always uses its past in new ways. And so one of the questions that has struck me, Joe, is how are we using our founding fathers today versus Mm. the way we might have even used them 50 years ago. And what I was struck by is, are we longing for the equalities of our founding fathers in a new desperate way? Mm. Or were they too flawed, but they look better from a distance? They are flawed. I mean, the body of my work over the last 40 years, Roxanne, has been to try to recover them, not as icons, but as imperfect human beings. I mean, after all, if they were demigods, if tongues of fire appeared over their heads in, in the Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention, then what in heaven's name would we have to learn from them? Mm. Um, they themselves did not think of themselves as demigods and did not wish to be remembered as such. And John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson both are really eloquent in saying, please don't canonize us and don't hold yourself hostage to the values that we we thought were, were preeminent. So I mean, I think that my positive way to see it is that just as the founders went back to the classics in ancient Greece and Rome, we're going back, I'm trying to take us back to our classics. And I pick four people, as you say, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, and Washington, and see if there's wisdom there that still is relevant for us and help us frame our questions in a, in a way that's somewhat different. Um, I think that the judicial school called originalism, which I talk about in the in the book at some length, is going back as justices in the Supreme Court, for example, to recover the original meaning of the words they used or the values that they had. And I think that the underlying assumption of that school of thought is it seems to me highly problematic for two reasons. One, as I say, they're not gods. Why go back to them if you believe that you're recovering something that's like divine wisdom that's come down? It isn't. Uh, it's there for that moment and that moment alone. Um, moreover, um, when you go back, you find out that the founders don't agree, that Madison doesn't agree with Jefferson about mm. certain things, and certainly with Hamilton. And um, so that there is an argument back there. Um, the Chief Justice Roberts once said when he was being uh, interviewed for the position on the court that he was just an umpire calling balls and strikes. Well, baseball didn't exist in 1787, and the whole name of the game is what's the strike zone, which has been expanding enormously as we've included women and blacks and Native Americans and even gays into the concept of we the people. So I'm troubled by and critical of that 
legal tradition, and uh, readers will be able to see that uh, in in the book, which has a chapter called uh, Immaculate Misconceptions. Let's talk about that for a second. I was going to start with the chapter on race, but I think um, I I like us starting with the notion of the law. I I think the race thing is the most resonant thing for us, but uh, just to follow up what we're talking about, the Second Amendment has been interpreted by Justice Scalia and the Supreme Court in a decision called D.C. versus Heller in 2008 as providing almost an unlimited right to carry a gun and to own a gun. I say, okay, let's be originalist about it and go back and find out what did Madison mean when he wrote the Second Amendment? What did he think he was doing? What did the House and the Senate think it was doing when it when voted for it? What did the 13 states think when they ratified it? And the term bare arms for them didn't mean own a gun. It meant carry a weapon in, in a militia unit or in an army unit at the mm. federal level. And um, so that the D.C. versus Heller decision is misguided and you don't really have Second Amendment rights. You have Scalia rights, I'm saying. Um, the real meaning of the Second Amendment, ironically, is which was uh, in, encased in legislation passed in 1792 after the amendment had just passed in the Militia Act, so that every able-bodied white male between the age of 18 and 49 had to purchase an, a musket and an outfit and serve in the state militia. So in some sense, what the Second Amendment is really saying is not that you have a right to own a gun, but you have an obligation to serve, Mm. um, which is quite a different thing. So I think it's a misuse of the originalist tradition, and I think the law as it's been defined by originalists, and five of the now Supreme Court justices are originalists, vetted by the Federalist Society, is pushing us in a direction which in some sense the founders themselves and the original intent of the framers would say no to. Yeah, and that was that's the question I wanted to ask you is what ironically would the founding fathers say about the modern originalist interpretation of the documents they drew? Well, I mean, you you would get different answers from different people. Uh, Jefferson would say, that he he really thinks it's silly for us to be doing this, that we should be rewriting the Constitution every 20 to 25 years. Um, Adams would say, why in heaven's name have you kept the Electoral College? Um, That was something that we didn't really like ourselves. Um, I think that the founders want us to recognize we need to interpret the Constitution through our own eyes, and that the only kind of Constitution that exists is the living Constitution. Um, and for an originalist justice like the late Dr. Late Justice Scalia to say that he possesses the capacity to detachedly understand what all of these people back there were really thinking, that's really hubristic. And, and I mean, what do you, that's that's very it's a it's a it's a claim that is really difficult to justify. They want us to interpret the meaning of their words in the context of our own of our own values and our own problems. If you bring Adams into the present, into a mall, he would say, my God, what is this? If you ask uh, Washington what he thinks of our role in Iraq, he would say, where is Iraq? Um, so it's a misapplication, in my view, and I'm a 
a historian. They're playing on my turf here. Um, <laughs> that, uh, a misapplication of the values of the founders to drive what is really an anti-government agenda and what becomes a kind of a corporate agenda in the decisions that they've made over the last 25 years. But, Joe, if we think about our structure, our government structure of the three branches of government, it is the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, that is making these decisions. Right. So what is... That's not what they intended. Um, they didn't intend, they intended Congress, not the Supreme Court, to be the most sovereign branch of the government. Um, and the one thing, if you read the, the debate over the, the court system in the Philadelphia Convention, the one thing they didn't want the Supreme Court to be was supreme. It was the furthest removed from the people. So it's become, in the 20th century, uh, since Brown versus Board of Education, the place where we sent all the most difficult issues for resolution. They they didn't intend that. Um, they they didn't even intend initially for the Supreme Court to be the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution. They thought that each branch should be its own arbiter of, of what those words meant. Because we can't reach agreement in Congress, we've sent it to nine people. Um, and so the, the future fate of, of let's say, you know, race relations depends upon five guys or they're not guys now, thank heaven, they're men and women, but that that's not what they thought we should be doing. So, Joe, at what point did Congress abdicate their responsibility in the role that you are laying out? Somewhere in the middle of the 20th century. And what um, drove that? What drove that shift? Um, we've become a larger society, now 325 million. They only had 4 million to deal with back then, to be sure. But more importantly, we became a superpower. And when you become a superpower, power evolves to the executive branch on foreign policy and then to the judicial branch on domestic policy, because the Congress becomes uh, a cacophony. Um, and the Congress becomes cowardly when it comes to war-making powers, the last time we went to war the way that the Constitution uh, says we're supposed to is December 8, 1941. They defer that to the, the, the commander-in-chief now. And we started sending the difficult issues to the Supreme Court in 1954 under Brown versus Board of Education. That's when it happened. And how do you think or do you think it's conceivable that the relative roles of the branches of government will come back to the way you're describing the Founding Fathers imagined it, or should it? I think it should, although I think it's not going to be easy. Um, I mean, I I think that uh, what Madison would say, in 1829, Madison was asked how long he thought the Constitution as written would last, and he said about 100 years, if we're lucky. Mm. But it's impossible to imagine a second constitutional convention. Um, it would be a it would be a circus, um, and I, but I do think that there's there's room in the system for structural changes, um, and I mean I I would like to see us get rid of the electoral college right now. That's got to be easy to do, but knowing that that's what we should do is, and I think we should look for leadership outside government, outside mainstream government for a while, 
because inside it's impossible. Um, it's a plutocracy, and it's it's highly partisan. Where might be places at that leadership? From the local and state level, mm-hmm. uh, states can certainly begin to experiment with certain kinds of things that, that are not possible at the federal level. You're already seeing that in terms of climate change and some issues on gun control, um, that, that, that the states can become laboratories for that. But it won't be easy. Um, um, I wish I, I wish, you know, I, one of my best friends is Doris Kearns Goodwin, and she's got a book on leadership here that's come out at the same time as mine, and I've done some events with her. Doris is more more optimistic than I am. Um, mm-hmm. She sees the liberal tradition as something that's inever, inevitable and inexorable, and it's going to come and rescue us, as it has in the past, in the progressive area and the New Deal and the Great Society. I'm not so sure about that. I end my book with a a sentence from Tocqueville, I am full of apprehension and hope. Both of them coexist for me. It's going to be a struggle. Um, But if we know which way we want to go, it's not an impossible struggle. Let's stay on uh, this topic a second. So one of the quotes that I have always been mesmerized by is from Reinhold Niebuhr. The quote is, it is the evil in man that makes democracy necessary and man's belief in justice that makes democracy possible. How might the considerable letters, the 158 letters, between Adams and Jefferson from 1812 mm. to 1826 have addressed that quote? How might they have agreed or disagreed they did. about I mean, you're calling it, I love the Niebuhr quote. I don't use it in the book, but it is a wonderful quote. So your judgment on that is impeccable in my view. But that between 1812 and 1826, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson engaged in a correspondence, as you'd say, 158 letters. They were posing for posterity. They were writing to us as much as they were to each other because they knew we would be talking about them on your program at this time. <laughs> and they were, they, that was their form of immortality. Neither one of them believed that that were clear that they were going to live on in heaven or hell afterwards. And Adams was wonderful. He said, it can never be shown conclusively that there is no hereafter. And my advice to every man, woman, and child on the planet is to take opium, um, (laughs) which I think is wonderful. Um, But they... So he would have been, he would have approved of legalizing marijuana. I think so, he would. But, right? But, yeah, he would. Jefferson would, too. They would have agreed on that one, but they disagreed. Here's the great thing. These are both prominent founders. Both of their lives were made by the Revolution, and they had something to do with the making of it themselves. And at the end of it, as they look back, they don't agree on what they had done. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't agree what the Revolution really meant. And so it's a dialogue between two people who are friends and then enemies, Remember, they ran against each other for the presidency twice yeah. in 1796 and 1800. Um, and, and became a there. Abigail had a hard time forgiving Jefferson mm. for some of the scandal mongers he hired to, to defame um, her husband. Um, but I think that what's at stake here is what a republic is, what the term res publica means, public things. And Jefferson believes that the public and the, and the people are the same thing, that the people will end up thinking about and doing the right thing if properly informed. Adams believes that the public 
is different from the people, um, and that the public interest is the long-term interest of the people, which at any given moment most people don't understand. Um, Jefferson is a kind of is an idealist. Adams is a realist. Jefferson believes that freedom and equality can coexist. If you free people to pursue their happiness in the marketplace, it will produce a, a reasonably equal distribution of wealth. Adams thinks if you free them to do that, it's going to produce inequality. And Joe, do you think it would be fair, given what you've just said about Jefferson, to more approximate him to a populist? Yeah, he is. But he's a, yes, he is a populist. And um, he believed that the revolution should be a kind of permanent thing. Mao has a similar idea. He had to have a, you know, he had to clear out the arterial system of the body politic every 20 or 25 years with another revolution. So when Shay's revolution happens in Western Mass, Adams thinks that's a bad sign. It's a sign of, of anarchy. Jefferson says, no, that's healthy. That's a good thing. The tree of mm. liberty must be watered by the blood of tyrants every generation. And he's a utopian in some sense, is Jefferson. And Jefferson's thought leads to the French Revolution and leads to what becomes the guillotine. And when that happens, and Jefferson and, and Adams talk about this, Jefferson says, you were right, and I was wrong about that. I didn't understand that once you release those energies, they can have the terroristic and the bloody consequences that they do. And he admits to, to Adams, and Adams says, that's the biggest concession I've ever heard in my whole life. And, um, but it's the argument that they're having that I find so wonderful and that it's a kind of role model for what we need mm. to be able to have as we inhabit our apps and our bubbles and our MSNBC versus our Fox Newses, and that we've lost that. And they are that's where I think they are role models for us. Not so much in them representing an absolute perfection, but rather no. in their willingness to debate the issues substantively. Exactly right. That they're, And the, both of them would say, for God's sakes, don't canonize us. We'll be back after a short break from our sponsor. Today's episode is also brought to you by Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps is an entertaining true-life memoir of Diane Shaw, first female sports journalist for a major national daily. Diane details her experiences breaking the glass ceiling in sports journalism, and laying the path for today's female reporters. Diane is candid about the sexism and discrimination that she encountered as she wasn't one of the boys. Diane tells comedic, fascinating, and sometimes tragic stories about her adventures in journalism, featuring some of the biggest names of the era. Examples include the time that a tipsy Mickey Mantle tried to hit on her with a creepy greeting card, the time that she was uninvited from the baseball writer dinner as no women were allowed, or the time she snuck into the Republican Party gala. Other famous folks that get a mention are Frank Sinatra, Paul Newman, Dennis Quaid, and Larry Bird. Diane went on to write for the New York Times, Newsweek, GQ, Playboy, and Esquire. She has also written four mystery novels. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps offers behind-the-scenes details of stories of a trailblazing career and the prejudices facing female sports writers during the 60s and 70s. Right now, for a limited time, Redlining Books and Indiana University Press are offering an exclusive free chapter download for listeners of this show. Visit iupress.org, jockstraps, dash book to download a special sneak peek. Feral to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps by Dan Shaw is available wherever books are sold. 
Talking about canonizing, um, Mm. let me read um, your words to you, Joe. And this is – so your first section is on race. Mm. And you illustrate the paradox of Thomas Jefferson by starting with a quote that says, nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people are to be free. Nor is it less certain that the two races, equally free, cannot live in the same government. Nature, habit, opinion has drawn indelible lines of distinction between them. And then you introduce this topic by saying, if the central contradiction of American history is the coexistence of slavery and a creedal commitment to individual freedom— Jefferson lived both sides of that contradiction more conspicuously than any of Americans' founders. So how did Jefferson within himself, in his own thinking, reconcile that paradox? Oh, Roxanne, that's, you know, probably the most difficult question in American history to answer. I've written a book on Jefferson, a whole book called American Sphinx, which I think that he he straddles the great divide in American history because he really wrote the magic words of American history that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he believed that. And he was a leader in, on the, in, in Virginia and in the nation for the first half of his life on the issue that slavery was incompatible with the values of the American Revolution. He believed that. Almost all the founders believed that, even the slave owners from Virginia and the South Carolina. But he also believed that once freed the African-American population had to be sent somewhere else, that a biracial or multiracial society was impossible. Um, And he wasn't alone in thinking that, okay? I mean, um, later in in the 19th century, if you read Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, it's got an appendix, and it says, and once they get freed, we should send them all to Liberia. Um, and even Abraham Lincoln in 1863 gathers the freed blacks into the White House after the Battle of Gettysburg and says, if we win the war, which now seems possible, you have to get ready to go. And I'm sending a committee down to, a five-man committee down to Panama to check out Panama as a possible location. So what we need to understand, and Jefferson helps us understand this, it's difficult, but it has to be faced, is the idea of a multiracial society is a very modern American idea. It's a mid-20th century idea. What we are trying to do as a people now has never been done before by a major nation-state, to create a genuinely equal multiracial society. Um, And when we elected Barack Obama and many including me initially, thought we were beginning to enter a post-racial America. We were really deceiving ourselves. Mm. Um, And in fact, what we should have expected and which we got is a backlash Backlash. against that. There is a significant portion of the American populace that has never fully accepted the full terms of the civil rights movement. And I think that we now see in America, and we can thank Donald Trump for this, Uh, He's a kind of airburst in the night. It's now possible in many areas of the American society to play the race card up, not just play it down. And as we get closer to 2045, when the white population will become a statistical minority, I think we can expect this is fertile ground for demagogues. 
The race race is a permanent presence in American society. It's buried beneath the surface of our society, racial prejudice. And it's never going to go away. It's like cancer. We're going to make improvements. We're going to get a lot better at treating it. But it's always going to be there. And knowing that, as difficult as it is to face it, is really important um, because we've got to know what we're up against. And while King is right, that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. The United States is not the moral universe. Um, and what we're trying to do is really hard. Um, there's a quote from James Baldwin that I used from Notes on the Native Son. The establishment of democracy on the American continent was scarcely as radical a break with the European past as was the necessity, which Americans now face, of broadening the concept to include black men and women. That's where we are. Right now, we're in a moment where the prejudice is affecting policy in a direct way, and I'm hopeful we're going to move forward from this, but the only way we can move forward is to recognize what we're really up against. And, and Joe, one of the things that occurred to me in reading uh, the two chapters on race, one, the then, meaning uh, Jefferson's, and then the chapter, Abiding Backlash, which is introduced by the quote you just shared with us from uh, James Baldwin. So two things struck me, and I'd I'd be interested in your comments. One is, I think we forget that the Civil War got rid of slavery but not racism. Right. And this is the delusional optimist in me. Is the fact that in recent years we've again picked up the rock that exposed exposes the degree of racism that actually Mm -hmm. continues to exist in too much of the population mean that we might step towards the kind of dialogue that you're campaigning Mm -hmm. for? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I I do. I mean, I think that the battle over Confederate monuments in the South, the old Confederacy, represents an opportunity, it seems to me, to face the fact that and many people in the South really don't understand this, and, they, and or it's, it's hard. They see the, the Civil War as a war to preserve Southern sovereignty against an invasion by the Northern armies of, of Lincoln. It was, in the end, a war about slavery. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those monuments represent places where we can come together and begin to have serious conversations about that. I think you can go to the mall and stand on the mall and look at the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, it's off in the distance on the Tidal Basin, and the Martin Luther King Memorial, and say, let's reconstruct a dialogue among these three people. Right. Okay? When, when King gave the I Have a Dream speech in August of 63, he was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But he said, I've come to collect on a promissory note written by Thomas Jefferson. We are a part of a dialogue that's been going on for over 200 years. Mm. And King is telling us where the next step is and where he tried to lead us and did lead us. But that's a place where we can have those kind of conversations. And um, I think there are a lot of people in America who, who would, if you ask them, am I a racist, they would honestly say no. Right. But they're the same, in many cases, the same people who believed the lie that that um, the birther lie about, about about Obama and that the fact that they believe that in the face of all evidence is itself a 
an indirect way of saying that I can't believe a guy that looks like that is my president. Mm. Now, on the same token, listen to this. Go to see Hamilton. Look at how many people are going to see Hamilton. Right. Your kids, your grandkids are reading. You know, it's like it's like Harry Potter for them. Again. Right. And that and that that's a black, almost entirely black and Hispanic uh, uh, cast, and they love it. Um, and so that there are different sides of America's attitude towards race coexistent right now, and we need to get them to, to talk to each other. How many people do you think would be surprised to learn that Lincoln? actually thought that once the blacks were free, mm. that they should then be exported. Most people would be surprised. When, uh, when I do this in audiences, they question that. Now, what Lincoln would have actually done is impossible to know because he right. was assassinated. And in fact, what happened, the Civil War was a crisis and a trauma, and so that the, and the, the Northern Republicans were prepared to let the blacks remained as long as they stayed in the South. Um, but And in the North, the Northerns didn't have the same problem because the population was so you know, predominantly white. I don't know what Lincoln would have done, but I think what it does is make you realize that what you said earlier, the end of slavery had nothing to do with the end of racism. Right. In fact, I think the South was more racist in the late 19th, early 20th century than it was before, mm. because slavery controlled racism. You didn't have to worry. But then in order to control it afterwards, you had to have the Klan, and, which was a terrorist organization. Early 20th century America, that's when most of these Confederate statues got put up, by the way. And, you know, Joe, one of the statistics that you've got in the book that um, I had not read before is that at the time of the revolution, 20 percent of the U.S. population, which was about Two and a half million, right? Were uh, black three million, three million and seventy six. Uh, but yeah, five hundred thousand were African Americans. And one of the ironic implications is that African American population in the United States now can trace its origins further back than most of the white population, right. including my family, which you know came over during this potato famine in the middle of the nineteenth century, and they're Irish. I mean, and the first blacks arrived in Virginia in 1619, the year before the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock. And this is one of Baldwin's points, you know, it's funny because he's an expatriate who spent most of his time in Paris. But he said the notion that the, black, the blacks can think of the answer is going back to Africa or leaving is ridiculous. They're Americans. Right. They're more American than the More than American the white than population. most of us. Yeah, yeah. And, Joe, how do you think this dialogue around race, you know, you, you bring up— the play Hamilton, which is mm. a, a stake in the ground of the conversation. But where and how does that conversation take place where it might lead to change? In small groups first and in communities that face decisions about, say, school curricula or um, in discussions about voting rights and the ways in which there's, in many states, uh, the attempt to restrict um, African-American and minority voting, um, it's kind of come up. In other words, you don't have to create an opportunity. There are plenty of places where it's going to come up. Um, and to the extent that we're grounded in our history and understand where we're at and where we've been, the discussion, I think, will be... I mean, I think that, let say, the Supreme Court's decision to remove certain federal guidelines that, that guaranteed voting rights for blacks 
um, was a mistake mm. because it was operating on the assumption that we passed that problem and that we can presume that uh, African Americans are not going to be denied access to the polls. Well, that's not true. Um, I mean, look at the incarceration rate, too, of blacks right now. It's you know, very, very high. We have the highest incarceration rate of any uh, nation in the world, by the way. And um, um, so that it's not that we have to create. These are going to be unavoidable contexts in which a discussion of our race problem exists. And an awareness of how we're committed to a goal, which is hard and has not been done before by any major nation state, but that is worth doing. And in fact, is inevitable. Um, is is going to happen, and it's is happening happen. as we speak. Yeah. So the way in which we're talking about this would present uh, the need for leadership. Mm. And um, in your epilogue, where you talk about leadership, you have a quote from <clears throat> one of the letters that John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson uh, that says. Public affairs go on pretty much as usual, perpetual chicanery, and rather more personal abuse than there used to be. Our American like today, doesn't it? Exactly. Our American chivalry is the worst in the world. It has no laws, no bounds, no definitions. It seems to be all of a caprice. And what he was talking about was the election of Jackson and the creation of Jacksonian democracy, which now you can translate again, very loosely and imperfectly into the election of Donald Trump. Um, but the, I think that, that leadership, I look for leadership outside mainstream politics for the next few years. And, um, I mean, I think that from a Democratic Party point of view, the most recent midterms have produced some young people to come forward, and I, and I think that's, that's good. Um, but I look, believe it or not, to the corporate sector and to um, states uh, that are we're prepared to engage these issues. I look for leadership to emerge outside mainstream politics. I mean, Martin Luther King could have never been elected to anything. And the political system in Washington is a plutocracy. Mm. The first thing that you have to do when you want to run for office is get money. And, your and real define plutocracy for us, Joe. A plutocracy is government by the wealthy. Mm. And uh, it is an oligarchy that then uses its financial uh, advantage to control and determine who gets elected and what the agenda is. And we have a higher degree of income inequality in the United States than we've ever had before. We are no longer a middle-class society. Mm. I mean, we invented the middle class. We became the first middle class. Tocqueville said the quality of condition is the distinctive feature of American democracy. And now um, the wealth is divided so that the, at the very top at the top 1%, it's really, really incredible. Um, I mean, Louis Brandeis in 1933 said, we must make a choice. We may have a democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, but we cannot have both. Well, we have it concentrated in the hands of the few now. Mm. And those few have used that power to gain control of, of the government. And, I mean, I know that sounds almost conspiratorial, but it's a fact. And it it's going to be very difficult for anybody who wants to run for office at the national level to be able to successfully do that without selling his or her soul. And would finance reform, real finance, campaign finance reform, unwind that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Citizens United decision is the worst Supreme Court decision since, um, oh, since Dred Scott, 1857, because it gives 
the the, the billionaire class a megaphone, and um, and I I mean I think if you do away with it, you still haven't solved the problem. But that I think that the real solution is not is that we have to have wealth more evenly distributed than we do now. Again, that's not going to be easy because the very people that need to vote that on are dependent on the donor class that doesn't want it to happen. And um, But um, I think that the New Deal did it. And, um, I mean, I know they think about the New Deal as social. I mean, the, the right has controlled the vocabulary on this debate. I'm not a socialist. Socialism is government ownership of the means of production. I'm not in favor of that. I'm a, I'm a believer in the free market. But there needs to be a contract between democracy and capitalism. We let capitalism function freely to produce wealth on the condition that the wealth is distributed in order to assure a robust middle class. We grow the economy from the middle out, not from the top down. Mm. That's the direction we need to go in. It won't be easy, but if you know that's the direction, we know how to at least frame the question. And, Joe, where do you fall on the question of, you know, we've been talking a lot about what the founding fathers meant, but if you read these documents and you read the biographies that you and others have written about them, you can't help but think these were unique, unreplicable set of human beings that Mm. sort of sprung whole from the womb in the late 1700s. I mean, do you subscribe to the to the notion that they are unique and unreplicable or or Mm. are there circumstances that allowed them to flourish and those circumstances could exist again? I will. I'll try to be brief on that. That's a huge. um, They were distinctive, not because God appeared to them in any way, but because historically they occupied a very distinctive moment. It was pre-democratic and post-aristocratic. This was a generation that could never have emerged in France or England because those were societies in which uh, people could not go from the bottom to the middle or the top. They were hierarchical societies. And And monarchies. Yeah, and a monarchy. But a guy like Hamilton, who was literally a bastard, is unimaginable. Even even Adams would have just been a country lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Washington would have just been a major in the British Army. Um, on the other hand, it wasn't a democracy yet. It was it was driven by merit and talent, and um, it was a natural aristocracy. But it made possible. This is ironic. It made possible the emergence of a democracy. And that very democracy then makes that kind of elite very difficult to get. And so I don't think you can replicate them again. As as Twain said, Christ, when he went to the Holy Land, Christ been here once, will never come again. And um, <laughs> But I think that what they had that brought them together and that made it work was an incredible crisis. Yeah. The crisis was whether to secede from the British Empire or whether to create a nation-state. If you think about all the three great presidents— Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt all faced enormous crises. I think that we need a crisis. As a culture. And I think it's coming at us, Roxanne, we don't have to invent it. It's coming at us in the form of climate change. Mm. And that climate change is going to create a set of conditions which make leadership absolutely essential, and, and it, will, it will generate a, a, a set of problems that force us to come together. If you look at, a, you know, the first responders that come to Houston to rescue people from the hurricane on the top of the roof, they don't ask them if they're Trump supporters. They don't ask them right. if they're, or look at them and see if they're white or black. They're all Americans at that moment. Um, 
And we're going to be facing a set of conditions over the ensuing decades that are going to force similar kinds of thinking. Um, so I certainly don't welcome climate change, but I think that it's going to be a set of conditions that force us into a collective action in a way that right now we're incapable of having. Mm, I feel sad about that, that we need a crisis. Yeah, I know. We wish we didn't, but we do. They needed one, too. Yeah. And, and they had one. One of the things that worries me about climate change is that I think I think of it like slavery, that we could have ended slavery gradually, and the founders failed us on this war. And you talk about the Louisiana Purchase by Jefferson. Yeah, it was a chance to do it then, a right. chance to do it, to use the, the profits from that to, to, to deny slavery expansion to the territories and use the profits to pay off the slave owners in the Deep South. But they failed, and I think that we're, climate change is like that. If we don't do something soon or already, it's going to hit this point where exponentially it gets worse, and that makes it much more difficult to solve, and we're going to start having to evacuate coastal cities. I worry that we're going to wait too long. We are in the denial stage now. The president says climate change is a hoax. We're the only country in the world that um, literally the only major nation, I guess, other than Syria, it's not signer of the Paris Accords. Mm. And, um, but that the fact that we are not solving it now means that when it starts to really hit us hard, the, the, the crisis is going to be much more fierce and much more difficult. But that's when we will respond. Pessimistic, but I think it's realistic. You know, your pals, John Meacham and Doris mm. Kearns Goodwin, present a more optimistic belief in our better angels. I, I take right. it from reading your book, you might not subscribe to that. No, I was just on a panel with them in Columbus, Ohio, two days ago. And uh, we talked about this very thing. We get along really well. And Meacham and Doris are both first-rate writers about the past. And both of them believe that the liberal tradition is going to come rescue us. And John's phrase, you know, you quote, quote, like in the better angels of our nature. Well, two points. Lincoln used that in the first inaugural, and two weeks after he used it, the Civil War began. Mm. So, so much for that. <laughs> yeah, and Madison said, if men were angels, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. Um, I don't think you can trust in the better angels of our nature. Yeah. Um, if you did, you wouldn't need the Constitution. Um, that Constitution is, is written by people who didn't believe in the better angels of our nature. Yeah, they, they were, that. our laws are a guard against our right. unbetter angels. That's right. That's right. But where Doris and John and I do agree is that, as I say, apprehension and hope. My side of hope is we've, we're the greatest power in the world, economically and militarily. We are the founders of the liberal tradition. I think, is the, the wave of the future, even though now it doesn't look that way. And um, that we have faced worse things before and solved them. Mm. And that knowledge should be uplifting. I'm going to go with that, Joe. And, <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, you have. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question that we ask all our guests, and that is, what is the book that changed your life? The book that changed my life. Hmm. Um, The Great Gatsby. And because? I understood what it meant to write. To, uh, there was a musicality to the style that was intoxicating to me. Mm. Um, it's, 
I think that if you're searching for a book that's, I mean, it, it affected me more as a writer and as a person who thought about how to put words on paper. Um, if you're thinking more politically and more ideologically, um, hmm, um, a book by Edmund Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom, mm. and how slavery and freedom coexist because they support one another, ironically. And I went to graduate school at Yale because there's a guy called C. Van Woodward who wrote a book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And I'm a Southerner, I was, um, and, uh, and so it, it helped me to understand where I was coming from. Um, those are three of them, at least, that helped, that, that had big impacts on me. Is that Edward Morgan who wrote the biog- uh, slim little biography of Benjamin Franklin? Yeah, same guy. He was my, he was my graduate school mentor. Yeah. He, he, he allowed me to write. I, didn't, I never had to unlearn how to write as an academic because I never learned it in the first place. <laughs> so we've been talking with Joseph Ellis, the Pulitzer Prize, National Book Award-winning, prolific historian, talking about his new book called American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. And, Joe, I know I sort of pushed you into being a little bit more optimistic than your natural reflexes might have uh, suggested. But in fact, I think your book, which I would urge everyone to read, we've just sort of uh, hit the tip of the iceberg in our conversation. I think your book actually provides the kind of substance that could begin the American dialogue, which could conceivably lead to our addressing some of these frightening and seemingly insurmountable issues that exist in our country today. If that happens, I'll be thrilled. I really appreciate your, your letting me talk, and dialogue that we're having is, is part of what we need more of. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.